Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Jennifer Buckingham, Director of Strategy at Multilit and creator of the Five from Five Project. Jennifer is here to tell us about Five from Five, how it promotes effective evidence-based reading instruction, and how we can ensure that all children get that in Australia today. Jennifer Buckingham, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Salvatore. How are you? Oh, great. Thanks for being on the program. Look, let's start at the beginning. I've just been learning about Five from Five. Can you tell everyone about Five from Five? Well, Five from Five started as an initiative of the Centre for Independent Study. Um, and it is now um, governed and run by and supported by Multilit, which is the organisation I work for now. Um, so the, the project shifted when I changed employers um, so that it could continue, essentially, because, you know, I found it and I direct it and it's um, very much my baby. I have um, a great team of supporters. Um, but um, Multilit wanted to make sure it continued as a community sort of outreach with lots of education and information for people, so they now generously support that. And so it, it is essentially a, a, a way of providing teachers, parents, principals, policymakers, anyone who is interested with the evidence base about effective reading instruction. So right. there's that element of it. It's an information um, platform, but there's also you know, a lot of advocacy involved. So making sure that information gets to the people who need it. Right. Now, my mother's watching today. She is herself a retired teacher, but she is a high school mathematics teacher. We're talking kids. What sort of age groups are we talking? I assume five from five means we're starting from five and then going up to where? Well, it's aimed at, um, as you say, children from the age of five. So basically from the age of five until they can read. So however long that takes. Um, for some children, it's a couple of years. For some children, it's longer. Uh, and so the, the other part of the, the five from five is the five essential elements of reading instruction that have been identified in countless um, scientific-based um, reading instruction studies. And those are phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. Yep. So we have a website, 55.com.au, so more information about all of that is there. But the idea is that every child should be getting really good explicit instruction in those things from their first day at school. Now, I know anyone who just searches five from five will pop up the website and I encourage them to have a look. I'm going to run through that list. I actually wrote it down, but I know our listeners haven't. Phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. Look, let's start at the beginning because I've heard of most of those. I have not heard of phonemic awareness. What are we talking about there? Phonemic awareness is the ability to hear the uh, distinct individual sounds in speech. Okay. So we hear a word, um, it might be bottle, it might be hat. Um, we hear them as uh, as an explosion of sound. Um, we don't really think as adults about the fact that they're made up of individual sounds, every spoken word that we hear. So for children, they some do sort of glean that, but others don't. And so we need to help them to be able to hear, pull apart the sounds in speech um, and manipulate them so that then when they learn about letters, they can um, map the sounds they hear in speech into the letters they see in print and in words. And that really is the key to decoding and being able to read words accurately is understanding those letter sound relationships. 
Right. Now, is that something that starts in the home? Because I think of recognizing sounds as being the sounds of English, say, as opposed to just being random utterances. That's something that happens long before kids come to school, isn't it? Or how does the, how is the school involved in that? Yeah, so our, ideally, oral language right. and that phonemic awareness would be developing in the early years uh, before children start school. But unfortunately, for a range of reasons, and sometimes they're to do with uh, you know, a low literacy or a low language household. Um, sometimes it is actually just to do with different neurological um, conditions. So um, being having difficulty with hearing speech sounds and particularly with then being able to associate them with print um, is sometimes something that is completely beyond the control of parents and what they're doing at home. So you know, it's great to read with children and speak to them and everyone should be doing that before their children start school. There is absolutely, you know, no, no thing can go wrong um, when you do that. That's to be encouraged, but that's not enough. So children do need to have some explicit teaching um, about those early stages of reading um, in order for them to um, be successful readers. Now, now, I don't think phonemic awareness is something that'll be very controversial, but I'd like to move on to the F word, Phonics. <laughs> I know people get very passionate about phonics. What does phonics mean to you, first of all? And then, uh, you know, what does it mean for our listeners? Well, phonics has really been a key focus of the Five from Five project, um, and not because it is the only aspect of reading, and I'm constantly accused of, you know, trying to promote the idea that, that phonics is the only thing that children need to learn. Of course it's not. Um, you know, that that is made very clear in the even the name of the project. It's five from five, and we list clearly all of those different elements of reading instruction. But phonics is probably the weakest link in a lot of schools. And it's because it's poorly taught in teacher education courses. So there's a cycle there that has um, continued over at least a generation where um, there was a lack of attention paid to that aspect of reading. There was a movement over a period of time that was educational and philosophical and sociological, that there was this idea that children would just um, pick up that aspect of reading. They would work out for themselves uh, that words represent speech and that, they're, um, and that happens in a structured way. Um, but we now know that's not the case, that you can read to children um, for hours and hours on end and some of them will work that out, but most will need to have it explained to them explicitly. In order to become proficient in that decoding um, aspect of reading, they need really good instruction over a reasonable period of time and some more than others. So, uh, you know, I really am um, unashamedly focused on that aspect of reading, even while I continue to say it's not the only one, because that, that is the, the thing I think that's least well understood. All right. Fluency? Well, fluency is the sort of the bit between um, decoding and um, comprehension. So it's being able to read in a fluent, natural, expressive way. So um, when children first are learning to decode, if they're using those letter-sound relationships, they may sound a little bit kind of robotic as they sound words out, and right. and that's natural. To play the piano. They will, when they're first learning those notes and they're reading simple pieces of music, they'll play in a fairly sort of stilted way. And over time with practice um, and with feedback and instruction, they'll learn to play fluently. And, it's, and reading is very similar. 
So um, lots of practice, lots of exposure to print, lots of feedback, and children will start to learn to read fluently. And once they do that, they're much more likely to be able to attend to the meaning of what they're reading, um, which, of course, that's the end game. So is fluency part of what uh, what's acquired when parents read children's books to children, but they try to read them expressively instead of just reading the book? I always notice parents never just read the book. Parents always act out the book. Is that something parents just do naturally, is teaching their, their kids how to be fluent? Yeah, I think most do. And, and we, we sort of expect that that will emerge naturally um, as children learn to read. And for some it does, um, and for some it doesn't. And they need to be have that explained to them um, that when you're reading um, a piece of text that has some dialogue right. and there's a, a question mark at the end of that, that sentence within um, the quotation marks, then you generally inflect your voice at the end of it. And some children will pick that up implicitly they, they, through interaction with people and hearing things read, but not all. Um, and that really, that, that fluency and expressiveness um, has a big impact on how well they comprehend what they're reading and also their enjoyment, which is another important element. Oh, I never thought of that, that kids have to be taught that when they see the question mark, they have to ask a question, I guess. And and that does mean the rising inflection at the end. Yeah, uh, unless you're Australian, in which case every yes, sentence has a, ri- so a rising inflection at the end. <laughs> yeah, I, I notice that more when I go overseas. I don't notice it so much here, and I probably do it myself. But uh, we'd make a lot of assumptions about what children will just learn somehow without having explained to them. Um, and it's not always the case. Some, some children, as I said, just, you know, pick up that stuff, but others need to have it explained to them, and otherwise they miss out. There are big gaps in their knowledge, and we don't want that. Now, vocabulary seems pretty straightforward to me. That's the fourth element of five from five. But I'm remembering, I mean, like most lay people, I'm remembering my own experience of learning vocabulary, and I'm remembering fourth and fifth grade. I can't remember kindergarten and first grade. What do you do for vocabulary when kids are just starting out? Lots of things. So we again, we make a lot of assumptions about the things that children know when they start school. And obviously that that's going to vary a great deal. Oral vocabulary um, is an oral language is another aspect um, of reading. So it, we don't include it in that that big five, um, but it's a very important element. And some people talk about the big six. Um, but we sort of, the way that I approach it with five from five is there are elements of oral oral uh, language within the other uh, the other five. But um, there are some children, particularly in um, in households that um, are from non-English speaking backgrounds or um, parents are not well educated or for whatever reason, um, children, some children start school knowing very little in terms of oral language and oral vocabulary. So basic things like above, smaller, bigger, <laughs> those sorts of things that again we make assumptions that children know all of that and that they don't necessarily but then there are also you know content related things around vocabulary what you know what what's a letter even right, <laughs> so right. we have a lot of um knowledge that we forget that not everybody has and um and the best way to approach that with children is just to make sure that in a systematic way that they understand all of the things they, they need um, in order to even just to function at school. You know, there are, there are children who uh, find it hard to follow instructions because we assume they know what they're being asked to do and sometimes they don't. 
so right from that very basic stage up to, you know, um, other things that um, they'll be seeing in books, whether it's, you know, animals or um, trees or parts of the natural world. There are all kinds of things that, that children need to learn about in those very early stages of school and to have explained to them. All right. Now, the fifth element of five from five, which I'm thinking is probably the direction the whole project goes, comprehension. So comprehension obviously is the end game. That's where, what we want children to be able to achieve. Comprehension is a very complex um, aspect of the reading process. So it, even when all of those other things are in place, uh, comprehension is something that needs to be worked on because there are things that we are doing as skilled readers that um, we don't even realise we're doing at the time. So we're making inferences. So we're, we are remembering what was uh, in one sentence when we read the next sentence and we can work out how the second sentence relates to the first even when it's not necessarily made explicit. Um, there are idioms that are used um, in, in written language that aren't used in, very much in spoken language. There are all kinds of things going on that are, are really important. So that's that, that fifth aspect um, of reading instruction. If children can decode, they have good vocabulary, good vocabulary, good oral language, then it's highly likely they'll be good comprehenders, but it is still something that has to be worked on anyway. Right, now we're going to go to reader uh, viewer questions in just a moment. In the meantime, I wanna say you have a lot of fans on Facebook. <laughs> Robin, Robin says five from five is great and has made a huge, capital letters, huge impact on the teaching of, uh, and, of reading in Australia. And Kirsty says that uh, Jennifer's work is brilliant and uh, thank you for hosting her. I guess that's a compliment for us here at, at CIS. <laughs> so everyone's thrilled that you're on the program today and I'm thrilled as well. Look, uh, five from five sounds great, uh, at least to me as a layperson, but let's get down to some practical aspects of this. Uh, what, are, what are the role of say parents in this? Uh, I mean, what does this mean if you actually have a child who's in a program like this? Well, for parents, it means if their school is using, or the child's school is, is um, following the, the evidence base and the principles that are set out um, by Five from Five, and these are not things that we've discovered. <laughs> this is just bringing together thousands of research studies and um, communicating and um, providing them in a way that's accessible to teachers and to parents. So if, if their school is using something based along the same principles as five from five, then there's a very good chance their child is going to get a great start in reading. So that's what that means for parents. The website also has some really great information for parents about how they can help their children um, with learning to read and um, right through from, you know, developing that phonemic awareness ability to if you have a reluctant reader. How, you know, they, they're okay at reading, but they don't really like it very much. What are some of the ways that you can turn them on to being more interested in reading, helping with book selection, all that kind of thing? So it, it really is about the, you know, the technical aspects, the nuts and bolts of making sure children can read, but hopefully helping them to, to um, develop a love of reading if possible as well, because the more kids read, the more they read um, and the better they get at it. All right, now I'm going to go to our viewer questions in a moment. They're starting to roll in. But first I do wanna say thanks everyone for watching and listening. We are a membership funded organization here at Center for Independent Studies. So there is a uh, 
contribute or a, a support link in the YouTube comments. You can also go to the CIS website and click support. Uh, CIS is, of course, a completely donor-funded organization. That is, there is no taxpayer money going to the Center for Independent Studies. And as you might guess, with the coronavirus situation, that has been a, a tough stance to maintain. And so the CIS does need people's help. Now, it's not for me. Uh, I'm just kind of hanging on here. It's not for Jennifer. This is for the people who are running the show to keep the show on the air and to keep CIS afloat. It's the end of financial year. Of course, they're always looking for end of financial year donations. Now, I'm going to make a special offer. I am not authorized to do this, but Center for Independent Studies does have this book, Liberty and Liberalism. I'm going to offer to send anyone who becomes a full member, that's a $250 membership category, a full member, I will send a personally signed copy if you mention that you became a full member through uh, our show today. So if you mentioned that you were listening to On Liberty and you wanted a book on liberty, well, ask to have Salvatore sign it and I will get that signed and sent out to you. Uh, it is end of financial year and we do really welcome your support. Uh, Jennifer, I'm going to go to the first question, which is from uh, Kim. Kim wants to know, have you seen a shift in schools to evidence-based instruction, especially in K through two, but also more broadly? Are you seeing more evidence-based instruction in Australian schools? Yes, I am. I'm very pleased to be able to say that I am. Um, and it's a bit patchy. Um, it, and it's taken, in, in some states, it's um, very much been school-led that there have been a few schools who have uh, really taken uh, the lead in terms of changing the way that they do things. Um, they have achieved the most outstanding results um, by following evidence-based principles for reading instruction. And so they've really become impossible to ignore. That, that grassroots um, kind of reform and getting results um, has been fantastic and they've been lighthouse schools for other schools around the country. Um, in New South Wales, for example, there has been quite strong leadership from the department, great PD for teachers. Um, they are participating or they're running a phonics check trial later this year, which is, you know, something I could not have even imagined five years ago. Yeah. So that's, a, that's an enormous shift. The South Australian government um, picked up the phonics check uh, two years ago and um, they have been really concentrating on making sure that all of their schools are using evidence-based practice in the early years. Uh, in other states and territories, it's sort of in some regions, yes, and in some schools, yes, and others are, are taking a little bit longer to get on board. But it, it's very clear that there has been a movement, which is wonderful. All right. Now, I do want to say a little shout out to Sarah. Thanks for watching. To Hamid, who I believe is watching from Ireland. Uh, thank you both. Also, Anthony, who has been a regular supporter of this show. He has a couple questions for you. I'm going to ask one of them. What do you, what is what you're saying that the most important education sectors are kindergarten and primary schools? That is, are you saying that this foundation has to be there before anything else? Or, or can we really, let's be honest, catch up these deficiencies in later grades? I don't think it's a matter of more or less important. You know, each, each level of schooling has its role to play. But we do know that it's, very, it's, it's pretty much impossible for a child to have a successful um, education pathway through secondary education if they don't learn to read well in primary school. So it is very much the foundation upon which um, the other things are built. If you think about it like a house, then, you know, which part of the house is most important? Um, you know, you need it all. 
<laughs> all of it comprises the house. It's not a house without the walls or the roof, but the foundations are what it all rests on. It can't stand up without them. And getting it right in those early years of school prevents a huge range of problems later on, from truancy through to um, uh, early school dropouts through to behaviour issues. It's really uh, it's hard to overestimate um, how important early reading instruction is. Right. Now, we're talking about schools, and it's now, I mean, we're celebrating five years of five from five, so it's triple five all around. Um, have schools, what schools have implemented? I mean, how many schools nationally are using five from five? Can you give us any kind of numbers on that? Well, five from five isn't a, a program, it's a project. Okay. So we don't, you know, sell a program into school. It's a project that provides free information for schools to use. Um, um, to develop their own programs or to choose another. The, the organisation I work for now, Multilit, is a provider of reading programs um, that are based on the principles of the 5 from 5 research. So it means that schools can, if they want to develop their own programs, can use the 5 from 5 information to go about doing that. That's information that's derived from um, from research reviews, from journal articles, from, you know, it's all, it's all very much uh, scientific evidence-based. Um, if they would rather... Um, buy a product that's been tried and tested um, and evaluated and achieved great results in other schools, then they can buy a multi-lit um, pro okay. uh, program. But in terms of numbers of, of schools using 5 from 5, it's very difficult to tell. I mean, we have an enormous um, following on social media. Right. Um, we have run something called Phonics Roadshows in schools around the country. Um, and the feedback that I get from those is that for the schools that attended, it's completely changed the way right. that they do, uh, and inevitably that that had spread from there. But we don't, you know, we don't um, catalogue the numbers of schools that use it. Right, because this is actually a free program. Or, sorry, program. Uh, it's really uh, a, a free free information. It's free yeah, resources okay. and information. I, I was losing the word you used for it. Uh, this is freely available online. There's people can just go to the Five from Five website and use the resources themselves, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and so it's not an off-the-shelf kind of deal. Um, you you know, you can't sort of just look at the 5 from 5 website and, you know, here's my literacy program already done for me, but it can be used to develop an evidence-based reading program. Um, so, the, you know, the guidelines are there, the information is there, and the schools have the time um, right. and, right. and the, the – it's, it's, really is a lot of the time and the will, I suppose, to construct their own program using that information they can. Um, but then there are also obviously the multi-lit programs that are done for them. Right. Now, we do have one viewer right now, Sarah, who is herself a private tutor, uh, who thus doesn't have the resources to purchase a program, of, of you know, like we were saying. But it sounds like she could actually take elements from five from five and use them in her own work. Uh, she's asking, do you have any inexpensive and interesting recommendations for young readers? It sounds like there must be something on the site for her. Oh, there's an, an enormous amount of uh, information on that website. Um, and sometimes I forget what's on there. <laughs> it's been built up over a long period of time. Um, and I, yeah, sometimes, like, you know, if I, I've gone to add some new content, I discover things that I think, 
gosh, I'd forgotten that was on there. That's really good. <laughs> and so start promoting it again. Yeah, there, there really is a huge amount of information there for whether you're a private tutor, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, principal, policymaker, it, um, it's targeted in lots of different ways and is usable, usable by everyone. Right. Now, we have a question from David. I don't know if this is a plug or if this is something you're involved with, so I'm just going to read it out and you tell us. Uh, he, he, wants us to he wants you to tell us about Initial Lit, now in its third year of implementation. Is that something you're f engaged with? Initial Lit is a multi-lit program. So okay. it's the early instruction program that's for whole classes. So it's um, available for foundation, year one and year two, and it's um, the whole literacy program for, for 90 minutes each day in reading, spelling, handwriting. So that's all been tested in the way that all multi-lit programs have been, lots of trials in schools, data collected, you know, revisions, more testing, all that kind of thing. And so it's, it's available uh, for schools at the moment. It, it's a commercial product. You know, we spent a lot of money in research and development on it, so it's something that schools buy. Um, but very, very effective program if anyone's in interested in that. Now, maybe we should just make clear, what's the relationship between multi-lit, which I understand is the company you work for, and Five from Five, which is a free resource. So um, Five from Five is a way of providing schools with information about improving reading instruction. So even if they uh, don't want to or don't have the resources to buy a, a multi-lit program, they can use that information freely um, to construct their own. So there are two sort of arms to it. There's The multi-lit company wants all children to be able to read well. Um, and so if that's using a multi-lit product, great. If it's using the five from five information to improve their reading instruction um, by using those resources, then that's great too. I mean, the, the overall objective is to, to make sure that we've, we've got all children able to read. And that, that is why they support five from five and provide all information freely and allow me to spend my time on it. Um, all right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great resource. And to be clear, Five from Five itself comes out of the nonprofit sector, right? It's not a, it wasn't developed as kind of a, a, a freemium or some kind of giveaway by multi-lit. This is actually something that uh, was developed outside the corporate world. Is that right? Yeah, so Five from Five was going for three, three years. So saying, saying it's been around for five years is probably a little bit of poetic license, not quite that. <laughs> but the, So it was launched in 2016, um, but the, the work, had leading up to the launch had been going on for a while before that but I think the seeds of it were really planted with a an article called why Jaden can't read which was a, a big eye-opener for a lot of people about what is going on about the gap between what we know about how children learn to read and what was going on in classrooms so those first few years of five from five were very, very productive um we produced a document that set out the research rationale for the program, which is really widely used and has been influential. Um, we worked very hard on um, advocating for the phonics screening check for year one um, okay. and had some success there. So it's now um, a federal government policy and they're developing a, a phonics check um, to be used by um, schools voluntarily. The South Australian government, as I mentioned before, adopted it. So. That's been a specific policy aspect. We also um, produced some uh, an audit of initial reading instruction um, in um, universities. So that was an, another element of it, of course. I mean, targeting schools with this information um, is one thing, but it doesn't uh, break the cycle. 
Um, and so in order to improve uh, reading instruction, it means that we need to have, you know, new teachers know how to do that. Right. I don't know how to. So that audit found that um, most initial teacher education courses weren't providing teachers with the, um, the evidence-based strategies that they needed to teach reading. Uh, and so that then led to uh, a change in the accreditation standards for initial teacher education. Oh, wow. Um, and so they now have to include that content, which is wonderful, and they also have to spend more time on it. So there has been some, you know, really clear points where the information provided by Five from Five has just exposed, I guess, what a lot of people knew, but you need to have some data and you need to have some hard research and evidence to actually show what needs to be done and, and also the, the extent of the problem. Uh, and so Five from Five has been a very successful project at the policy level as well as at um, providing that support to schools and to parents that they value as well. Now, I have to admit, I really meant that as a leading question to let you say that Five from Five grew out of the Centre for Independent Studies <laughs> and your work here. Can you just tell us just a little bit about your work at the Centre for Independent Studies before you moved hmm. uh, You moved on and took Five from Five uh, you know, full-fledged out yeah, into the world? I, I yeah, I mentioned that at the beginning, but if anyone's just chimed in... Um, so five from five at the CIS and philanthropically funded project. We had um, a number of donors uh, who were transparently listed on our website um, because that's, that's something that people like to know and, in, and we, were, we were proud to list our supporters on the five from five website. And it was, we then had also had people who supported it with um, not financially per se, but in terms of endorsing the project and getting behind it and, and providing a lot of in-kind support. Um, very generous people who donated their time and, and their knowledge to getting the, the project off the ground. Uh, and it was a, a relatively unusual initiative for an organisation like CIS at the time. And, and, um, okay. But it worked well. Yeah, and I bring that up just to remind people that when you support an organisation like Centre for Independent Studies or another uh, nonprofit, if it's something, you know, someone else you believe in, that money actually goes to do important things. So it sounds like, you know, this program, which was started philanthropically by members and donors at the Center for Independent Studies, has blossomed into something that's having a real world impact. Very much so. Um, and it does um, point to and, um, and emphasize how important it is for organizations like CIS to be able to do what they do and in a very um, sustained way. It takes a long, long time. So even though, it, you know, Five from Five has achieved a lot in a relatively short time, it's built upon decades of work um, and building a, a reputation at CIS for doing good work um, at makers and others. So um, CIS, you know, it, it its um, long-term future depends on people and um, it's supporting it and it's, it's very important. And it uh, and in this case, you can act, you can't always see the, the direct influence that um, that policy research has. It, it sometimes has a diffuse effect and you, you can influence one thing that leads to another, but you know that actually it started with this, this thing that was produced from a think tank. Um, but with Five from Five, fortunately, you know, in that position to be able to sort of say, actually, you know, we, we did achieve this. We, uh, we weren't the only ones working in that direction. You know, obviously, we're not alone. There are other people who are um, 
advocating for these sorts of changes as well. But I think, you know, had the time and the support to be able to really work hard um, to achieve it. And, um, and that has paid off. Now, I'm a big fan of independent civil society organizations like the Center for Independent Studies. I know lots of other people listening are, but maybe some are not a fan of universities. Now, I work at a university. I know you have a PhD in education, but Anthony wants to ask us, are faculties of education in universities any use at all? Or are they simply perpetuating discredited ideas about literacy? And Mick is chiming in there. You know, what about universities? Are they doing anything to promote evidence-based instruction in their teacher training programs? So, you know, Mick and Anthony, both questioning the value of university education programs. What's your own view of that? A lot of education faculties in uh, universities were captured by this um, ideology, really, um, that led to changes in reading instruction away from the sorts of things we're talking about, you know, understanding the fact that you know, letters and the sounds that, um, that they represent in speech, i.e. phonics, um, towards a whole language approach a couple of decades ago and just haven't moved on. And that that's the status quo and the people of influence in those departments have been there for a long time and that's the way they do things. Um, but that's not to say everyone in those faculties um, has that point of view. So it's just that they tend to be in the minority and it's very hard for them to, um, to make changes. Um, and, you know, the accreditation standard changes that I mentioned before, it is going to give those people who know what needs to be done in terms of teacher training um, the ammunition that they need <laughs> in right. order to make those sorts of changes. So I'm very careful not to tar all education academics with the same brush because it's not fair and it's not right. Um, but I think it's fair to say it's very difficult to make those big changes. It has been very difficult to make the big necessary changes in the way that teachers are or pre-service teachers are learning to teach reading. Um, and so it needed a policy shift. I'm not Generally, you know, being a, a former CIS employee, um, not generally a big fan of um, regulations and that you would hope that universities would uh, recognise what the evidence is in the way that it shifted in the past 20 or 30 years, adopt that as best, um, the best information, the best evidence and change things. But unfortunately, that hasn't been the case. Um, and so in this situation, that kind of radical uh, change needed to be made in terms of the standards because it just wasn't going to happen otherwise. Right. Now, everyone's a big fan or at least thinks they're a big fan of you know, evidence-based, quote-unquote, uh, things. Uh, but of course, everyone differs over what evidence is. And for some people, evidence is their own personal experience. And also, we could argue that there's a role for things that can't ever be evidence-based. So there's a role for instinct, for theory. Um, why the evidence-based mantra? I mean, what is the role for things that maybe we can't get data on them, but they're still important? Yeah, sure. And there, there are different forms of evidence, and I certainly recognize that. Um, but some forms of evidence are much more reliable and more able to be generalized. So if you sort of think, okay, well, I, if I had, say, taught my daughter to read, that would be my experience of teaching her to read. It so happens that she's a precocious reader. So she right, was right. able to read from a pretty early age without much input from me. Um, if I 
generalize that to all children, then that's just not going to work. So you need a lot of evidence-based means you've got a lot of data points um, and you've been able to create controlled conditions. You know, if you change one thing, what happens? And then that way you can be fairly confident that if you only changed one thing and then the, the result was X, then it was probably that thing that you changed. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, a very simpl- simplistic way of describing it. But that's, you know, in terms of scientific research on um, educational practice, that's the way to think about it. What, what is going to be the most effective strategy for the largest number of children? So that's the applied element of it. Um, in terms of the other scientific um, evidence, it's very much based around what we know about what is going on in the brain when children learn to read and also what is going on when they, on when they don't learn to read because obviously the two sides are the same coin. What, what cognitive process is not happening for children who don't learn to read? And so then we, we can glean from that that if that's the thing that's happening for children who do. And designing instructional practices that are most likely um, to uh, accelerate that process in reading as early as possible um, for the largest number of children. So that's the important part. Of course, teachers bring their own professional experience. Um, and, you know, very uh, teachers have been teaching for a long time. In some cases, yes, they, they bring things, obviously, to that practice that elevates it even further. But there are also teachers who, you know, came to the phonics roadshows, for example, who have only recently been exposed to the scientific research evidence base. They've kind of been trained and always used um, a, a different approach who um, just feel now um, very sorry that they didn't know it before. Um, okay. Because had they known, there are a lot of children they might have been able to help that they didn't know how to help before. So there are different ways of looking at that. But when we're talking about scientific research evidence, it's, it's that generalizability that's not just focused on one example. It's lots of examples and also over a long period of time. Right. Now, you mentioned brain science, and I'm going to ask you about learning disabilities in just one minute. But first, I want to kind of double down on that evidence-based issue because people who are very experienced teachers may say, well, I've been in the classroom for 20 years. Who are you, educational consultants, you know, to come tell me uh, how to teach? But of course, each teacher has only been in her or his own classroom. And it may be that the teacher is an especially talented teacher and doesn't realize that other teachers may not have the same skills or the same kind of experience. So how do you apply evidence-based lessons to these teachers who are, you know, vary from the highly experienced, super engaged, highly, you know, professional teacher to someone who you know, maybe floundering in the classroom. How do you apply the same lessons across, you know, these wildly diverse teacher populations? Well, this is the great thing about, you know, having a scientific research evidence base is that um, it is available, you know, for anyone to use and it's um, that the research underpinning it is complex. In terms of using it in the classroom, it doesn't have to be. So the the classroom application, you know, we want it to be explicit and led by that research evidence, but um, you don't need to necessarily have read, you know, every um, cognitive science article on reading in order to be able to to do it. In terms of, you know, I'm I'm not a teacher, never claimed to be one, but I have the luxury of being able to read all of this research, um, put it together, 
the teachers about it who are um, using it, who have changed their practice in line with it, um, get that feedback from them, also develop it into programs that um, we are seeing get very effective results. So there's that element of it as well. And, and certainly recognise the, you know, the experience of um of teachers who have been teaching children to read, but it's also a kind of a sliding doors thing. Okay, well, yes, you've been six very successful um, teacher over however many years, but you know, if you had changed this element of your practice, my things have been even better. We, you know, you don't know that, um, but based on the evidence, you, you suspect that it probably is. Um, and the other third thing is that um, the evidence base is not static. So it's not a matter of, um, okay, well, I, I've read all of the, the research and evidence up to 2020 and I don't need to keep looking at it because now I know all there is to know. You know, that, that evidence base is changing all the time. We, you know, it, it's not changing what we've learned before and this is one of the remarkable things about reading instruction is it's very consistent and the new research tends to confirm or elaborate on what we already knew. But it's that expanding and elaborating and sort of drilling down into things that, you know, answering questions that were still left um, is a really important part of staying up to date on the research evidence. All right. Now, Michael is also a big fan. Uh, he wants to tell you that uh, he thinks your approach over many years is based on observation and experience. Too many universities seem to be driven by a slanted stance that ignores evidence. I'll Take that as a comment from Michael and a, a testament to uh, your own your own professionalism. Uh, but let me go back to that issue of learning disability because Sarah wanted to ask us about uh, students who have learning disabilities like dyslexia or if they come from non-native English speaking backgrounds. How does either how do you or how does five from five? I mean, how do we accommodate and help students who may have these additional challenges despite the what appears to me from the outside to be the enormous challenge of just learning to read in the first place. Uh, what do we do for students with those additional burdens? Well, fortunately, we know a lot about um, about reading dis difficulties and reading disabilities, uh, and dyslexia is the most common of them. Okay. Uh, with evidence-based reading instruction, it doesn't need to change depending on necessarily depending on the difficulty the child is having, the focus just needs to be different. So children with dyslexia, the, the most common reason for dyslexia is that they have difficulty um, making the connection between phonemes, so that phonemic awareness element, phonemes and, and letters, and then being able to um, blend them together to make words. So it's that so it's phonological awareness is that aspect. So they need a lot of help with phonics. Children with dyslexia generally have very good vocabularies. And again, I'm generalising because there is no, you know, uh, this is a child with dyslexia and they're all the same. They're, they're all different, of course. Um, but in terms of the, the difficulty they have with reading, it tends to be that. And often they have big vocabulary. That's not the, the problem. It's the actually translating the print into a word that they recognize which they can then use their oral vocabulary to get the meaning from and uh, and so on so five from five is applicable to you know all those children with reading difficulties because it helps you to drill down on the sub skill that the child is having difficulty with and target the instruction and the intervention um, in that direction so it's not a matter of a different form of instruction it's a level of intensity um, of the different elements of and, and also some children will just need so um, you know pretty much all their school life 
because it, we can sort of help them to read better through better instruction, but for whatever reason, they just find reading difficult and so they'll need it in order to access other areas of the curriculum. Unfortunately, a lot of those children are not getting that support. They need to be identified very early um, in order for that to be most effective. Right. Let, let me, we're going to be wrapping up in just a minute. I have two final questions for you. Before I do, again, I'd just like to encourage everyone at the end of financial year, if you're in a position where you're able to support the Center for Independent Studies, for example, if you've sailed through the crisis without any loss of salary and you really do have the ability to help out, uh, there is that support link there in the comments. Uh, and, you know, it's really appreciated. And that offer stands. The CIS has endorsed my offer for a uh, personally signed book if you do join as a new member at the $250 level and you ask for it. You will have to ask uh, in order for us to know. Uh, Jennifer, we're going to wrap up. I just have two final questions for you. One, if you could just briefly tell us about this video. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to go watch it tonight. Uh, why Jaden Can't Read. Could you just give a little plug for that and tell me what it is? Yeah, so J Why Jaden Can't Read was an article that um, I wrote uh, as a result of my PhD, which kind of tied all the strings together um, between what I'd learned about um, effective reading instruction um, and how it worked in the classroom and also that yawning gap between this evidence base, which was so enormous and so available to everybody and actually what was going on in most classrooms and in terms of policy, because a lot of classroom practice is driven by policy. So that document, that, that was then published um, by the CIS in the policy journal um, in 2014. And we also had an event that was related to that as well. So those videos are on the CIS website. So um, encourage people to have a look at that and, um, and all of the other five from five information as well. Right. And we do have a final question from uh, our own Center for Independent Studies, Glenn Fahey. Uh, he is quite literate <laughs> and so has passed me this question handwritten. I don't have my reading glasses on, but I'm going to do my best. Uh, is learning to read fundamentally different for digital? <laughs> I'm sorry, for, for digital natives, he asks. <laughs> Apparently not including himself in that category. We know that reading on screens and digital media is different, but does that translate to different approaches to teaching? Thank you, Glenn, digital native, for passing that question. What are your thoughts on that? Is, is the digital revolution changing reading? Oh, short answer, no. Um, no matter what children need, they need to be able to learn to read. They need to be able to work out that the print that they see, whether it's written on a piece of paper, whether it's on a screen, how do I translate those black marks into a word I recognise and understand and then put them all together in, in text that I can comprehend and get meaning from? So we know that, yes, reading on a screen is different in that um, people read it in a different way in terms of the how they search for the information that they need on a screen. So when people read on a the screen, they tend to skim and just pick out the information that they, they're looking for. It's a slightly different process reading um, in hard copy. But in terms of the actual cognitive process of um, being able to translate print into meaning, it's, it's the same thing. Um, in terms of teaching, children need to learn to do handwriting. That, that's the one thing that I'll... Um, point out there that, you know, uh, typing is not um, going to be enough to, for children to learn to, to read and write. Handwriting is a very important part of that learning to read process. 
Right. Well, Glenn has certainly learned that lesson. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Buckingham, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Salvatore. Oh, our pleasure. I'd also like to thank our hardworking producer, Emily Holmes, who's keeping the show together today. Great work. Our executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver. And of course, the director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. Thanks everyone for watching and we will see you next week.